0: Thank you, Clint. Good morning. morning. Just want to thank our church, first of all. Just got back Thursday night with 25, Jake and Ann and myself, get back from Belize with 25 seniors. They all made it back. Um, There were some moments in the airport we weren't sure. But we had a phenomenal time. Would love to uh, have you in the next couple weeks hear from our students about what God did there. I think one great post that Lexi made, a senior from Emerald High after the trip, she said, not only did we see God change other people's lives, but my life has been changed forever. So thank you, uh, First Prez, for making that possible. It's a tremendous, tremendous time with uh, graduating seniors, and we have a lot to share about that. We're in a summer series uh, on the book of Colossians, I should say, the letter of Paul to the Church of Colossi, Colossians, called The Unity with Christ. And we want to pick up there in the first chapter starting verses 15 through 23. And Paul calls this the preeminence of Christ. There's a big word, preeminence. We'll talk about what that means and the implications of that. It's in page, on page 1251, 1, your pew Bible. Colossians first chapter, starting in verse 15. Listen to what Paul tells us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, again, as we think of Pentecost, Holy Spirit, fall on us, speak through me, speak in our hearts, use our feebleness and our weakness. Uh, in your strength to proclaim this good word and may it make sense and make a difference in our lives we ask in the name of christ amen tony campolo was a well-known is a well-known author he's also a a sociology professor um, at eastern college in philadelphia he's also a baptist minister and he says that when he flies on airplanes if he sits down to someone and he wants to talk and they begin a conversation he tells them he's a sociology professor he says if he doesn't want to talk, he tells him he's a Baptist preacher. <laughs> 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 but he said that one time, he is, as we look at this preemin- preeminence of Christ idea, this great truth, he said that one time he is flying with a gentleman across from New York back to, <clears throat> from LA back to Philadelphia, and he begins this conversation with this very, uh, airy, very well-dressed, successful-looking uh, man, uh, uh, and they move into spiritual things. And he says, I just can't believe that you Christians are so narrow minded, that, that, that you're so intolerant, that you think there's only one way to get to God. There's, there's any way, many ways to get to God. As long as you're sincere and you believe, there's many religions. What makes you Christians think that Jesus is the only one that can get you into heaven? What makes you so narrow minded? And so they began this conversation, this dialogue uh, about Christ, saying He is no one goes to the Father except through the Son. About the offer that Christ makes, and of course, the uh, this gentleman was having nothing to do with it. So I just can't buy that. I can't b- believe you're so narrow-minded and intolerant. Well later as the flight begins to, to descend into a, a snowy, windblown Philadelphia, the plane is shaking, they're having to circle, it's bad. And, and the pilot, of course, can't see. And he notices that his very uh, non-believing successful friend is gripping the armrest and just scared to death, white as a ghost. And he said, I just couldn't resist. He said, I looked over to him, I said, I'm glad the pilot doesn't have your theology. He said, well, what, what, what do you mean? Well, right now, the pilot is flying blind through a storm, and there's a man in a tower, and he's telling this pilot the exact vector and the exact setting for his airplane to land and the exact runway to land on. And what if, after the tower gave those instructions, the pilot said, Oh, there are many ways to get into the airport. There's many, many places I can land. And the guy said, I I see your point. (laughs) As we look at this study... Uh, this great word about who Christ is, I I think we see the challenge today of that same type of theology. After working with high school and middle school and college kids for over 40 years, I think the number one threat to our young people's faith, after having been been with 10 incredibly wonderful senior students for 10 days, the thing that I think is the most threatening to our, our young people's faith is not alcohol, it's not marijuana, it's not prescription drugs, STDs, vaping, sex. I think the number one threat to our young people's faith is the idol of tolerance. The idea, the universal belief that you can believe whatever you want to believe in it is true. Uh, this idea that whatever you want to be, that's truth. The truth is relative. That every man can believe and do what is right in his own eyes like it was in the Day of Judges. This is the biggest challenge, I think. What is tolerance? Tolerance, uh, D.A. Carson, sociologist uh, who studies young people, says tolerance not truth it's the new supreme value today. It is the number one virtue in our young people's minds today. I see it and I hear it all the time. Great kids, church kids, non church kids, tolerance is the new God. Listen to a song by the words to a song by uh, a very popular country western artist today, Casey Musgrave, number one country western album. Kids are singing it all week. Uh, listen, to this, listen to this line <clears throat> Make a lot of noise, kiss a lot of boys. Or girls, if that's your thing. When the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, just roll a joint. Or don't. Just follow your, your arrow wherever it points. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. That's the truth of the day. What's wrong with tolerance? Aren't we supposed to be caring and, and, and thoughtful of others? Absolutely. But as Anigo Montoya says in Princess Bride movie, a great classic movie, he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that is true about tolerance. Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Life, said this. Our culture has accepted two huge lies about tolerance. The first one is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second huge lie is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are utter nonsense. You do not have to compromise convictions to be compassionate for those that think differently than you. And that is the hard, subtle nuance that we have not done well as believers. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. Our memory verse for our Beliefs trip this week was 1 Peter 3.15. It has this concept of compassion and conviction, of being sensitive and inclusive, but also exclusive of the claims of Jesus as being truth against other claims of other religions and other beliefs. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, but always be ready for give a defense for the hope within you. See, there's the truth. To give a defense for the hope within you. Ah, but here it comes. But do so with gentleness and reverence. That's the fine balance in the scriptures of what it means to be tolerant. Paul gives us clarity in this passage that truth usurps universalism and the idea that anything you believe is true if you sincerely believe it by stating to us the clarity of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. This word preeminence, supreme, before, primary, this scripture is so clear. It's like beef jerky. You just keep chewing on it and chewing on it. There's so much in this. It is so clear. Paul answers three major questions. We're concerned about universalism and tolerance. He answers, first of all, what is the preeminence of Christ Jesus? What does that mean? And then secondly, what does this mean to us? What do I do with this? What are the practical applications? But then lastly, we can't leave, with get, we can't get off the hook. What are we called to do in response to what Paul says about Jesus? What is preeminence? What does it mean to us in this culture, this Believe Everything culture... And what am I called to do personally? Let's look at this first question. What is the preeminent of Christ Jesus? I used to work for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, and for a while I was on a hiring team. And of course, we would collect resumes, and we would read through all the specifics. I just got through the privilege, Anna and Jake and I, of looking at high school resumes and seeing their, their GPAs, and, and, and all they've done is recommend them for the first Presbyterian scholarship. We were able to give out six scholarships to our students. Thank you again. This is the resume of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, Let me tell you why this is the candidate for the job. Let me tell you why this, he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and there is no other. Here's his resume. See if anybody else measures up. Just look at the descriptions. Number one, he is the visible image of God. He is the visible image of God. When Thomas says, Show us the Father that we might see him, Jesus says, Have I not been with you long enough? Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're looking at him. It's me, I'm him the story of a statue in a small fishing village on the coast outside of Boston, outside of Gloucester, where perfect storm was filmed. There's a statue about the founder of that fishing village. And the statue says, this is a memory of the founder of our city, but this is not him. There was no uh, recording, no picture, no likeness of him could be found. So instead, we took a picture of his son and made the statue because it said, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. That's what Paul is saying. When you see the son, you see God the father in him and him alone. He is the invisible image of the invisible God. He is then the firstborn of all creation. He didn't just live for 33 years like other leaders like Muhammad, like Buddha. He wasn't just a man that did an amazing thing, like a great teacher, a great religious leader, a social impactor. He didn't just live for 33 years. He has always been. He wasn't even born. He was there from the beginning of time. He is eternal, eternally past, present, and future. He has always existed. There was never a right time. He did not exist. That's not just a normal person. That's not another religious leader. He is eternal, omniscient, omnipotent. All the ominous you can think of, he is them. In fact, when the the, uh, Pharisees are giving him a hard time, and he's talking about Abraham, he says, you think you're better than our our father Abraham? He says, let me tell you something. Can I blow your chronological mind? Before Abraham was Yahweh. why, Why are you quoting God's title from the Old Testament? Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, not I am now, not I will. I am existence. He was before. He's the firstborn of all creation. How about this one? All things were created by him, through him, and for him. He is the author, the power. He was there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When they said, let us make man our own image. Let us, the cosmic dance, see us loose. He was there at creation. God speaking through him. Genesis 1 says, 1 1 in the beginning, then John says, let's tie that to Jesus Christ. He says in the beginning was the logos. The Word, Jesus Christ, was there at the start. He is eternal. He's always been. Everything was made through Him, by Him, and for Him. Who else can say that? And I love this. He is before all things. That's the, this is the crux of this whole passage. He is before all things. No beginning, no end, has always been. And then here's this one. In Him, all things hold together. That is the basic truth reality that we must grab a hold of. In Him, all things hold together. I read of a chaplain who was uh, visiting and working with uh, soldiers in Vietnam, the start of the Vietnamese War. It was the first war ever fought with helicopters. That was when the helicopter actually came in as a as a battle piece to be used in warfare. And the chaplain is looking at this beautiful brand new helicopter that this helicopter pilot uh, is flying into battle outside of Ho Chi Minh at Saigon. And they're talking, and he says, this is the rotor blade. This is, and he's talking about different pieces of the helicopter. And then he gets to where the, the rotor blade comes through and that propeller, and there's this gigantic, imagine this nut being about 100 times this size. It's on top of the shaft of the propeller blade of the helicopter. And he goes, and this is the Jesus nut. He goes, excuse me? we call this the Jesus nut. And he goes, why would you call it the Jesus nut? He says, it holds the entire helicopter together. Is the most important piece of the helicopter. He says it's also what you scream as you're flying down, going down if it comes off. This is called the Jesus nut. That's what Paul says. In him, all things hold together. He is the most important part of our faith, of our world. It's like Jenga. Our kids play these giant Jenga games at restaurants. You play Jenga with your kids. You can take this piece off, nothing happens. You can take this piece off. But when you find that one piece that when you pull it, everything collapses... The game is over. Jesus is the Jenga piece of not just our lives, our church, our religion, but of existence itself. If Jesus Christ, Christ C.S. Lewis says, if Christ didn't exist, nothing would exist. There would be nothing, not just a missing church, it would be a missing reality. In him, all things hold together. Is our Jesus that big? Or as J.B. Phillips said, is our Jesus way too small? He is the head of the church uh, when we were in Belize, in Belmapan, the capital of Belize, twice we went to uh, a, a church service, a, a Belmapan Church of the Nazarene. They call it Biné. <laughs> the church is called Biné. And these 25 American kids come filing in, and they're Western culture, and, and there are Chinese people there because the Chinese run the, the markets. And there are Creole people there. They were left over by the, the slaves. When, when, when Britain because Belize was a British colony, when Britain gave them their when Britain freed the slaves, they left, they left thousands of slaves on the beaches at uh, Belize. And so now there's a Creole culture there. Uh, there's a Mayan culture, you can just tell by the, the look. Uh, there's a Mennonite culture there. It's, we walk into this church and it looks like the body of Christ. And here we are. And they're telling Creole stories and jokes, and we're not understanding much. They speak English, but Creole is a whole other word and a whole other language. Their, their, their food is different, their, everything is different, the standing, sitting. But when they start singing, when they start singing um, at the cross, when they start singing Amazing Grace, they start singing, "Bless." Our, our kids pick it up right there. It's in a calypso beat, it's kind of reggae, but it's the gospel. And when the pastor gets up to preach the word, we were right at home. Thousands of miles away. Jesus, the same gospel, the same Jesus. He is the head of the church in Belize, the church in Emerald, the church around the world. Jesus is the head, not some popular pastor, not some personality, not some individual or some group or some denomination, but Jesus Christ is the head of the church of Christ, his body. And if you and I worship anywhere, go anywhere where that is not true, run away. He is the head of the church, he is the beginning. I mean, that's just, that doesn't even need explanation. He's the start of everything. He is preeminent. We call our house the A and O. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega in real life. How about this one? He's the firstborn from the dead. Name one religion. Name one faith. Name any other f- denomination faith that can, c- can claim that. Name anyone. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first resurrected. I've been on about 32 mission trips now as I count back. One of the most frightening was in the Philippines. I took some Texas Tech students with Young Life and we went to the Philippines to help Young Life there. La Vida, I don't called it, um, Nueva La Vida. And we traveled with this priest, wonderful man, which took us to all these different cities, all these different places. He said one day, I want to take you to a faith healer. I'm like, I'm about 20 eight. Um, I'm like, I'm not sure about that. He said, no, this is guy, is, he's the real deal. He's healing people in the name of Jesus. I'm like, well, I don't doubt that that can happen. We got in our, our little jeepneys. We drove out of Manila, way up northern Luzon, the island of Luzon, to a city called Baguio. Beautiful, up in the mountains, over the South China Sea. It's a military base for the United States at one time. And we drove up, and there's this incredible resort building, And there's people lying all around it, sick, crippled, diseased. It looked like something out of the New Testament, the Pool of Bethesda. And they were there to see Juan LeBeau, the healer. And I'm just kind of wondering if this is a good thing. He takes us past all these sick people and takes us into this room, an anteroom, before you go into where the healing takes place. And there's there's a statue of Jesus Christ. I'm like, okay, there's a statue of Jesus then there's a statue of Buddha, and Confucius, and Mohammed, and these Mayan gods, and these other gods. And I'm like, Father, to the priest, I, I, I don't feel good about this. He goes, what's the problem? Jesus is here. Why, why are you just all about Jesus? I'm saying, well, Jesus says. <laughs> no one goes to the Father except for the Son. Okay, well, just wait and see. And so it was said that Juan lebeau would take someone, <clears throat> lay them on a table, and then he would physically put his hand into people's bodies and find the tumor and pull it out, and, and it would close. Or that he would go in and, and, and adjust people's necks or broken bones, that he could do that. And as he put a, a victim on the table and began putting blood on him, I said, we're out of here. And I took our group, and we left. And the priest was angry, and I said, that is not from God. He's not doing that in the name of Jesus. Sure enough, about a week and a half later, we're staring on in the Philippines. I'm reading Juan Labo, fake healer, <clears throat> unexposed. Apparently, he had this sheet, and underneath him was a bucket with chicken organs and blood and chicken parts, and he would smear blood, and they would reach under and pull out a chicken and say, look, this is the tumor. He was exposed. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Someone said, I can show you the graves and bones of Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed. I can't show you the bones of Jesus Christ because he's still using them. Nobody else can say that. He is the firstborn from the dead. And then this phrase, in him is the fullness of God. The incarnation, fully God, fully man. All other religions, someone said, all other religions are man trying to reach up to God and trying to perform and trying to come up with a system. This is how you reach God. By being reborn and reborn and reborn. By being good, good, good. By doing all these things. By doing these mystical things. We saw voodoo and what they call juju, uh, signs of that when we are in Belize. All these human rituals. So to all other religions are man trying to reach God, but only through Jesus Christ you have God reaching down to man through his Son. There is no other. He reconciles us, it says. He reconciles all things by his blood on the cross. Not just us with God, but us with each other and nature with nature. The world itself, he reconciles all things. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Is this being narrow minded or just the greatest act of love in history? In the silver chair, <clears throat> there's this character, Jill. She's a young lady. She knows all the original uh, Peter, Edmund, Susan, Lucy, who've already met Aslan, the Christ figure. They already know Aslan, the lion. But Jill doesn't believe in lions. She's an adolescent, she's a teenager. She's outgrown all those myths. But she finds herself in Narnia and she's lost. And she's walking and walking. She's dying of thirst. And she gets to where she's in trouble. And she is about to collapse, looking for water. And then she hears it, this bubbling brook, this beautiful stream. She runs through these trees. And there in the middle of the meadow is this perfectly clear, bright, beautiful stream, like we saw in Belize everywhere, of refreshing water. She runs to drink. But standing between her and the stream is this lion. He's not even looking at her. He's just looking around. She thinks maybe he didn't see me, and she starts to turn away. She hears this voice. If you're thirsty, you may drink. She turns to see this deep human voice, but all she sees is the lion. She stares at him. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst. Well, then drink. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frenetic, frantic. W- will you promise not, not to do anything to me if I do drink? I make no promises. Jill was so thirsty, she began to take a step forward. Do you eat little girls? I have swallowed up girls, boys, women, and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms that I dare not drink. Then you will die of thirst. Oh, dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream. And Lewis says, It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. She went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it. It quenched your thirst immediately. There is no other name. Under by heaven which men can be saved. There is no other stream. And tolerance and universalism is a lie that is ruining our generations to think there's other truth besides the truth of Jesus Christ. Is this narrow-minded or just the greatest act of love in history? That is the resume. The next verses, 21 to 22. What does this mean to us? I believe it. I get it. The preeminence of Jesus. So what? So what? Paul says this very clearly. Guess what? We were alienated from God by our sin. You and I were enemies of God. We're not a part of this. We, we, we are not going to see the Father on our own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Murray said. But here's the good news. By his death, the death of the most important individual in the existence of reality, by his death, by him dying on the cross, we are reconciled. We can be reconciled with the Father so it says, like a story that they heard of a high school boy, had no money, had no job, wrecked his father's car. He's, he's too afraid to go talk to his father. His father is incensed. Who's going to pay for this? Somebody has to pay for this. I'm too, I, I can't just let him go. I can't just say, no big deal. I, I, he's got to come to me. I'm not coming to him. And the father and the son are in the house and they're separate. And the mom, loving her son and loving her husband, goes, and takes her checkbook out with her money, writes the amount. Grabs her husband's hand, grabs her father's hand, puts the check in their hand and says, love each other. Jesus Christ has spanned the gap between a holy God and a sinful human and reconciled us, father and son. And here's the great promise. Because of this reconciliation, he will present us holy, blameless, above reproach to his father. Because if we believe that Jesus is who he is and name him as Lord and Savior, whoever, whatever you've done, wherever you've come from, guess what? He will present you and me blameless, holy, before his Father. We just graduated about 35, 40 seniors that we have been involved with, Jake and Ann and I, thank, thank the Lord, through A&O. <clears throat> Went through about 15 different graduation parties. My wife didn't have to cook for two weeks, pretty much. But at those graduations went to also a couple of WT graduations. There's are the candidates, and the dean or the, the principal, they get up and they say to the school board, I present to you the candidates, they are approved, they are finished, they, they are they, received. they have earned their diplomas, or WT, to the, the, to the president or the dean. I present to you the graduates of 2019, and they come forward in their robe, and they get their certificate that says, well done, you're finished, you're approved. Guess what the Bible says on the day, as it's called, capital D, on the last day, it says that we will be presented. All the human race will be presented, and that the book of life will be open. And if our name is in it, because not because we did something, not because we have a good GPA, not because we were good, not because we, but if our name is in the book of life because we believed and called the name of Jesus Christ, the same thing will happen. Jesus Christ will say, I present to you, Father, my children, the saints. They're approved. Receive them into your presence and put a white robe on us and lead us into. Enjoy the presence of the Father. Oh, what a day. Oh, glorious, glorious day. Enter in the presence. So now the last thing. What is my role? What do we do in this? What does Paul say our job is in this last part of the scripture? Pretty straightforward. Continue in the faith. If you are saved, act like it. Live like it. Salvation is not enough. Just salvation. Be a disciple. Be sanctified. Colossians 2.6, as many of us has received him, walk in him. Hebrews 6.1, leave behind the elementary teachings and go on to maturity. I have a two-year-old grandson named Shepherd. He is precious. He has a pacifier. Have to change his diaper, he drools. He rubs food all over himself. He cries. He acts like a precious two-year-old. It's precious. If he did that when he was 12, it would be sick and sad. If he does it when he's 22, we're going to have to put him into an institution. I'm not being insensitive to those that have been through that. If you've come to know Jesus Christ, move on. Continue in the faith. Are you and I closer to Jesus today than we were yesterday? Are we more like Jesus now than we were a year ago or 10 years ago? Are we continuing in the faith through involvement, through risk, sacrifice, leadership, small groups, accountability, scripture? Are we growing in the faith? Because look at what he's done for us. How can we just get saved and stuck? He says, secondly, be stable and steadfast regardless of what happens, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether or not God fulfills your expectations the way you think he should, regardless of what life throws at you, because Jesus says, it will be trouble, but I will be there. Can we say like Job, after he lost everything, though he slay me, I will trust in him. And lastly, in this time where truth is being challenged, where there is no truth, universalism, relevance, believe what you want to believe, just believe it sincerely, can we do this? Do not shift from the hope of the gospel. The gospel never changes. There's nothing new. It is still the same as it was on that day at Pentecost. When culture says that the gospel is not relevant or politically correct or we're being intolerant, can we stay with the gospel of Jesus Christ and give that and that alone to our young people, not other googly cock stuff that they hear? So it's the question for us today, my personal, for my own self. Paul's very clear that Christ is preeminent. Is preeminent in my lives over everything, over my love for my children, my love for this ministry, my love for my church, my home, my status, myself. Is Christ preeminent in my life? Is he before everything? Is he the only thing holding my life together? Is he the only thing keeping my life from falling apart? And do I understand that nothing that I have is keeping my life together?